Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop into things, here is a list of the kinds of topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So we talk about the human brain project, recurring motifs and circuits in the brain, what goes into building a high-resolution three-dimensional atlas of the brain, the forebrain structure known as the basal ganglia and the evolution of such structures, pain mapping, the difference between epigenetics and gene editing, Simulation neuroscience, communication at every scale of the nervous system, the anatomy of a brain cell, the future of academia, and, well, I don't want to spoil the whole thing, so let's go. William Scott Thompson is a first year, first month, actually, PhD student at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. Originally from Chelsea, Quebec, he holds a bachelor's degree in neuroscience and physics from McGill University and a master's degree in experimental neuroscience from Imperial College, London. Broadly, his scientific interests have centered on understanding, structurally and functionally, the networks formed between specific neurons. Past research endeavors have examined brain circuits involved in pain processing, sleep, traumatic brain injury, as well as neurosurgical atlas development. His current research within the Human Brain Project aims to characterize and reconstruct elements of the basal ganglia, a brain structure critical for behavior selection. This is a jam-packed introduction we're going to dive into right away. So without further ado, here's William Scott Thompson. Will, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. That is, that is, a, that is a great introduction, <laughs> written, written by yours truly. Not yours truly. That is me, written by you. So basically the way things have gone on this podcast thus far is we break down this introduction, make sure all the terms that come up do make sense. So it kind of acts as a bit of a backwards reference. So you're the first guest that I guess I've had who has seemingly taken a very broad approach to studying the brain. I've had different people in psychology who are studying specific phenomena, but here we're talking about the human brain project. I would love to know first and foremost what the human brain project is. Sure. Yeah. So the human brain project is uh, an initiative within Europe uh, funded by the European Union, which aims to overcome some of the difficulties in neuroscience in general and kind of difficulties that you see in all sorts of science where results from different labs and from different countries are not necessarily comparable immediately. So there are issues with how the experiments were undertaken, how the data was reported, and how the data is made available. So the idea with the Human Brain Project is can we sort of standardize the experimental process so that we can coordinate better between research groups and have this sort of more accessible, especially a more accessible infrastructure for for conducting science. 
So in the introduction, you're talking about lots of different brain circuits that are involved in things like pain processing, pain processing, sleep, traumatic brain injury. Can we use the same kinds of experimental paradigms and tests across all of these different types of fields or different brain circuits? Sure. I mean, one thing I think that one of the reasons why my, uh, my background seems a little bit broad and kind of detached is that I'm sort of more interested in understanding recurring motifs within the brain rather than certain functions. Okay. So I'm kind of really interested in, in any sort of circuit. I find there's stuff that the circuits have in common or differences between circuits and the sort of function might come second or in, in my, in my mind. So in that sense, yeah, I think, you know, there's lots of subtleties, but the idea of having a standardized and uh, repeatable experimental protocols lends itself to that very nicely. So you're basically a pattern seeker. Kind of. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. A glorified <laughs> pattern seeker. <laughs> yeah. And there is much glory to be had there. Okay. That's cool. So uh, one thing that I, that I would like to, to, to do more explicitly with guests starting with episode 12, this being number 13 is to get a bit of a chronology going in terms of the academic path to sure. give listeners an idea of how it is that one becomes a PhD candidate, how one kind of traverses the academic trajectory. So let's just super quickly lay down, I, I know that we kind of mentioned what you did, you know, in kind of bullet point form here, where you were and what the degree was, but maybe if you could help kind of thread that together in terms of the process of jumping from one level to the next. Sure. I think through much of my youth, I wanted to be like an engineer or a physicist of some sort. I was really into that uh, sort of problem solving. I was quite good at math at one point in my life. Um, <laughs> what changed? Uh, yeah, well, the math changed. <laughs> okay. Math got hard. You're like, oh, um, what? <laughs> I think it was like in uh, in Seja where I had uh, you get like maybe one week of neuroscience within like a biology course, and I was like really struck by that. And so when I was applying to universities, I was sort of on every uh, ticket or whatever, I was applying for both physics and uh, neuroscience. And I sort of just made a gut, gut decision. Quick, uh, quick, small side note for some of the international listeners. Uh, this podcast is recorded in Canada. And uh, the SEJEP the is basically just kind of an intermediate school between high school and university. So yeah, I just want to clear that up. Right. Anyways, yeah, keep going. I mentioned that. Uh, so yeah, I, I started with neuroscience and I, I really enjoyed it. It's a very interdisciplinary kind of multifaceted field. So I was at, at McGill and uh, I kind of wanted to keep going with physics at, as well. So I did do some physics studying on the side. Very difficult. I'm glad I had the neuroscience to fall back on. <laughs> when you say physics but on the side, like you... I minored in physics. In your undergrad? Yeah, yeah. Oh, hooray, we yeah, did the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, also, fun fact for listeners, I initially met Will in physics uh, at McGill University. Yeah, I think and we're so, both struggling, yeah. And then <laughs> we were like, okay, like we're, we're decently good at math, but like that was then. And then yeah, yeah, exactly. It's more it. difficult. That's it. That's and it. then you end up going into brain sciences. So Yeah, so I was trying to, I mean, they're not totally mutually exclusive fields. There's a lot of overlap. And there's a lot of takeaways you can get from the math and physics that are applicable. Right. But yeah, I really enjoyed uh, neuroscience academically. And I think maybe my second year, 
it was when I felt the pressure to start doing some practical, find myself a, a, a place in a lab somewhere. So I ended up with a position at the Montreal Neurological Institute mm -hmm. uh, with the neurosurgery unit. And we were building an atlas for guided neurosurgery. So the idea really is to take experimental results from others and put them on this computer platform that can be used by surgeons eventually. It's kind of a big undertaking and it's very much grunt work. It's not very, uh, you know, sophisticated. It really is sort of tracing out structures. So it, curious, it was interesting. Just with a, just with a bit of a uh, bit of, you know, like neuro background that I have, there was a man whose last name was Broadman. I don't mm -hmm. remember his first name. If you could fill me in on that. Um, have you heard of Broadman? I do. You know what? I don't know his first name either. Amazing. Well, he's, he's a guy who, who, and I guess I know him because of what are called the Broadman areas. Exactly. So yeah. He was, I think, was like 18 or like early 1900s, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't know the year. I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly when it's not a history no. podcast, but um, he, he basically kind of mapped out the brain. And so when you said Atlas, I, I figured maybe an Atlas already exists. So how was what you were sure. working on building off of the pre-existing structures that we knew? Yeah, I think um, his, Atlas was uh, sort of a bit more gross and not in like a disgusting sense, but in like a scale Holistic, sense. Yeah. So we were trying to get, first of all, higher resolution and the second one being three dimensions. So we would take a series of 2D images and then we can recombine what we've done on them in 3D with the software that was developed for us. Okay. So you could get a surgeon who could go in and, you know, in the operating room, I assume, look through this and sort of, so what I'm looking for? Locate? Orientate himself yeah, orient, yeah. In, uh, in, in 3D space. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, right. I think the Broadman areas were really just mapping the surface of the brain. Yeah. And I think, I think in a lot of surgical applications, some of the deeper areas can become even more important. So especially like recently, uh, surgery to treat certain neurodegenerative conditions has become kind of more mainstream. And so you, you have to get really deep. So that's sort of where the, where the need was. Speaking of deep, I believe <laughs> one of the deep structures are the basal ganglia. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. in the, <laughs> at the end of the introduction. So we're going to weave it all together now. Basal ganglia, big terms. What are the basal ganglia? You said they're critical for behavior selection, but sure. I don't know how, how helpful that is to the, the average listener, including sure, myself. Sure. <laughs> So basal, as in they sit at the base of the forebrain, and ganglia, kind of a group, a cluster. What's the forebrain? So the, yeah, your front of your brain. So mm -hmm. they sit kind of at the base of the front. Yeah. They're a kind of very well-defined set of structures that have been characterized pretty well. Their role is to sort of modify the output, and it's kind of akin to having uh, like, an, uh, like a parking brake or like an emergency brake on any commands that come down from the cortex to the rest of the body. So you could imagine that at any one point in time, there would be, you know, uh, who knows how many commands simultaneously coming down from the cortex saying, do this action, do this action, do this action. Mm -hmm. And in order to, to compromise between those competing commands, the basal ganglia is inhibiting them. So sort of blocking them and selectively opening up and allowing the command to pass through. Okay, like uh, like a like a border patrol. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> a bouncer. Yeah, yeah, that's a good checking idea. IDs. Yeah. We're not gonna move our legs right now. We're sleeping. 
Exactly. That's it. When you have two sort of competing things that don't exactly work together okay. to have this, this infrastructure, which um, selects. Okay. That makes sense. And at least in terms of the location, because I know the, the, the front of the brain to be in charge of kind of executive control of, of, of functioning. Mm. And so the basal ganglia then, are they kind of like the counterpart of the highly evolved, what's called the, I guess, prefrontal cortex? So actually, I guess, quick question, are the basal ganglia part of the cortex or is this something else? Yeah, so they're often kind of called like deep cortical structures. Okay. But I mean, it's funny you say like evolution, you bring that up. Some of the recent results from the lab I work with now have like identified that similar structures and very similar structures exist in as far back as the lamprey eel, which diverged from the mammalian pathway about 500 million years ago. So these structures are very old and well conserved across species. We see basal ganglia. Sorry, we see basal ganglia in the lamprey. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And through you know through all sorts of rodents, primates, the structure is very similar. So the the function seems to be something that's very important and has been preserved through evolution. On the surface, I guess because you were saying one could imagine there are lots of actions that might want to be inhibited at certain points. Could you give us like a, 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 a nice juicy example of when the basal ganglia would be hyperactive or like really, in, really involved? So the output from the basal ganglia is always hyperactive. That's by definition, it is always blocking. Okay. And then it integrates commands, similar commands or uh, extra commands, I guess, from the cortex that say, okay, we need to prioritize this action. It also incorporates dopamine, uh, which I know you've had someone speak on previously. So dopamine sort of has these differential effects on different cell types within the basal ganglia, which can incorporate things like goal direction and things like habitual behaviors. And they all sort of are processed through this basal ganglia infrastructure. And the, the end goal of, or the end result of that is the basal ganglia are actually inhibited, their output's inhibited. So they stop firing for a bit. So there's this little kind of like moment of silence, which allows the commands to pass through. That makes sense. I'm, I'm really looking to just grab onto like a real life thing. So goal directed behavior, like let's just pick a super simple. Sure. Yeah. In my daily life, when, when can I, like if I'm making a sandwich, is there a moment in the sandwich making process where I can go, Oh, my basal ganglia are right now inhibiting something. Sure. I mean, like you could have something else on your mind that maybe you're, you, you want to do, you, you want to go sit down, you know, you, you, you got to finish the sandwich. So okay. then there's some command from your brain that says, no, wait, you have to open the fridge first. Then the basal ganglia are saying, yeah, that's a good idea. That, serves our goal of making this sandwich so we're going to allow the the arm to make that movement open the fridge i see (laughs) so this this almost i don't really want to get into a huge debate about this but this is like this is very like free will debatey you know like if the anglia are 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 controlling what things that we think we want to do can actually then come into play then uh, i think the important thing is they're not acting in isolation they're integrating multiple commands so the cortex will be so say the motor cortex is the area that might be initiating these commands i'm not much of an expert there but then there'll be separate commands coming from other parts of the brain the cortex that also reach the basal ganglia at the same time and that would be more where the sort of actual you know free will idea comes in of 
who's initiating these commands. Does that make okay. sense? Okay, right. But if the bottleneck is through the basal ganglia, yeah, then it almost doesn't necessarily matter. Like, do <laughs> things... Okay, so before a command gets the basal ganglia, are we consciously aware of it? I have no idea. <laughs> okay, perfect. It's a okay. Good, good question, though. Cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah. We, we'll, just, uh, we'll, just, we'll just halt that debate yeah. <laughs> right in its tracks. So I'm going to steer us right back onto the academic path. Sure. So you finished telling us about how you, you know, kind of took this neuroscience. You had this one week of neuroscience in SEGEP and you kind of, you know, math is getting hard with physics. So you entered a master's degree. Like what was, how did you get into this master's degree and kind of decide what you wanted to do there? Sure. After the, uh, the Atlas project, before I left Montreal, I worked in another lab. So I kind of stayed in Montreal after I graduated a little bit. I was at the IRCM, which uh, if anyone from Montreal knows is affiliated with McGill as well as University of Montreal. So it was mm-hmm. kind of a nice research institute. And there we were mapping projections from the spinal cord up to the brain that process pain. And in that, again, I was still like, you know, I, I was serving someone else's project. It was a lot of grunt work, but it was really exciting to use some of these techniques. And that I think experience was sort of what made me want to go on and take my own undertake my own projects so what kind of techniques were you using in this in this uh pain processing mapping well the big thing was we were using transgenic mice which is just so exciting um the first time you get to like i mean i know some people might be uh averse to to dealing with animals but right so i mean the idea with transgenic mice is you can selectively uh express foreign genes within a subset of a population of, of cells in any well in any transgenic animal i mean my, mice have just become the industry standard so in our case we could specify a, a neuron type and have it express this protein that fluoresces under a microscope so the first time you have one of your slides under the microscope and you see these cells lit up in red or yellow or whatever it, it's really really quite a moment so that's sort of the main thing we're doing was was looking at uh, bits of the spinal cord under microscope with these fluorescent proteins and and tracing the projections up to the brain. Okay. There so were, from there, yep. sorry. No, there were a lot of a lot of concepts and like things that kind of sure. came play in the last four sentences. I think sure. I forgot to mention early on the the overarching goal of this of this podcast is that every like anybody can just pop into an episode sure, sure. Listen, yeah. understand <laughs> what's happening. So it is it is incumbent upon me. I need to do my job make sure that if this idea of like so transgenic mice now that hasn't been brought up on the podcast yet um okay. you're talking about genes and tr- and tracers and fluorescing and proteins sure. there's a whole lot going on here sure. let's actually Go just take a couple of minutes yeah. and actually kind of talk about this this tremendously crazy cool methodology yeah so i don't i'm not an expert on the history but within the last i don't know 50 years probably more recently we've been able to control the expression of bits of DNA from foreign species within experimental um, species. So 
there are foreign certain... species, like I'm taking like human DNA, putting it into a rat. Exactly. So in this case, we could use, I think like jellyfish is a big one because uh, lots of jellyfish glow. Okay. So what you could do is take the, isolate the gene that makes this glowing protein and put it in a mouse. And then you could selectively put that gene only in certain, or to express only in certain cells of the mouse. And then you have this very, very useful tool for lighting up cells of interest. Mm -hmm. um, and it's become, a, you know, one of the biggest techniques in neuroscience. Do we have this kind of technology? Like, do we use this in humans? Because I've, I've, I've heard of, of, you know, like radioactive tracers in, in research before or like fluorescing proteins. Like, right. Just to be able to identify certain structures. Yeah. Is it, is it safe for humans? Well, ethically, it's a big issue. So there was a famous case uh, within the last couple of years where a surgeon used some gene editing technology on, uh, on babies in, I believe it was in China. And he was claimed to be the first one to do it on humans. But there's a lot of ethical issues with changing the human genome. There are ethical issues with changing the genome of any animal. But as we kind of get closer to ourselves, it becomes more and more of a moral dilemma. I think in our lifetimes, we probably will see it done in humans. There's still a number of safety concerns, like, you know, what, what are you actually impacting down the line? But uh, it's definitely a useful tool. This is epigenetics we're talking about right now? That's Not like epigenetics, but gene editing. Okay. What is the difference between gene editing and epigenetics? So epigenetics, again, not an expert, but epi means kind of like uh, on top of or in addition yeah. to. Okay. So the epigenetics are, if you think of, if you think of your, your genes, your DNA as like the information on a CD, mm -hmm. and the epigenetics can be certain scratches or the absence of scratches. So the data that you want is the, the genetics and the epigenetics are inhibiting or allowing you to read the data. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but it's the one I was taught. So in, in terms of gene editing, you're saying you can actually introduce new DNA into yeah. an organism, and with epigenetics, you're just working with the DNA in that organism. Sort of, you're, yeah, you're, you're modifying how the cell is able to read its own DNA. Okay. By so, physically obstructing it. Let's say, let's say I was a baby and you wanted to apply some epigenetics to me and there was a part of my DNA strand that encoded having hazel eyes versus blue eyes. Right. So you could basically say, no, I don't want you to, you know, caught, kind of follow this instruction that says hazel. I want you to follow the instruction that says blue, yeah. you know, blue eyes, as opposed to, I don't want you to follow the instruction that says hazel. I want you to follow this new thing, which gives me lizard eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, not my field, but I think the, the idea is that there are intrinsic elements within cells that uh, modify the access to the DNA. So they physically will kind of close up bits of the DNA so that it can't be read and can't be turned into a protein. Okay. Um, and then that's the idea. And then won't, you know, won't have any, any role in your body. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Silenced. Or, yeah. All right. The theme of today is inhibition. Yeah, exactly. the basal ganglia and this gene editing we're just trying yeah. to suppress absolutely everything <laughs> okay 
So, all right. So you studied pain processing uh, in your master's degree. You were, you were uh, mapping projections from the spinal cord. That was that was pre-masters actually, and then that was, uh, that was in the interim period, right? Yeah. Then I went to London, and which, uh, which London? London, Ontario, or uh, London? Uh, I don't know. I, it's funny. I only get it from Canadians, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm half joking, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, London, England. So I was at uh, at Imperial College, which is a kind of a science institute in London. I actually initially started working on a separate, another pain project in humans. So it's using non-invasive techniques to stimulate the brain to increase our or decrease our how we process pain. Non-invasive meaning like what? Uh, don't have to cut your skull open. Okay, so like putting <laughs> electrodes, putting, putting exactly, like, yeah, uh, like so, a cap on my head that then. Exactly. So that, I mean, that, that sort of t- uh, technology has been around for a long time. And the issue with, you know, its first rollout was you can only really get the, what's the word I'm looking for here? Surface. The, uh, surface. Yeah, exactly. The most superior layers of the brain. So parts of the brain that lie deeper are inaccessible unless you go in and implant electrodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to work with a very, very brilliant guy who had pioneered the use of existing technology in this new protocol where if you can imagine you're sending electrical electromagnetic waves through your skull if you can send multiple and coordinate them in such a way that they uh they interfere with each other right so i mean we've done some physics where there's wave interference mm-hmm. and then you can selectively tune this to have a little bit a little region where the wave interference is not happening and you have a, a locus of activity. So with this, you can direct the exact same, using the exact same technology, you can direct your stimulation deep into the brain without stimulating the overlaying cortex. By using kind of two sources of this. Exactly, yeah. In theory, you could use, you know, however many you could fit on the skull and get like really, really complex patterns of activity. But so for my study, we used two. And so there's a region in the forebrain again called the anterior cingulate cortex. Cingulate, I think, something to do with it looks kind of like a, like a U. I think it's mm-hmm. the Latin word for that. I think cingulate means like ring. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Kind of curls around the brain. Yeah. Um, and there are some like really old, like uh, early 20th century or maybe mid 20th century studies with patients who had had surgery and had had electrodes implanted. And I mean, I think a lot of neurosurgeons are opportunists. And so when they have the chance to go into the skull, they like to kind of play around because they Mm. don't get it very often. So there are a lot of very interesting insights into neuroscience that came about that way. And there were some really interesting findings that uh, some surgeons were able to implant electrodes and stimulate the the anterior cingulate cortex and in doing so reduce patients' hypersensitivity to pain. So our kind of idea is, hey, we have this new technology where we can, we can stimulate that same region without the complicated and dangerous surgery. Mm-hmm. And let's see if we can use that to not reduce pain processing, but to lower the hypersensitivity to pain. So you're basically trying to replicate this initial crazy surgery with something totally non-invasive. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, one of the issues with, with pain processing and with, hypersensitivity to pain and to we have this i mean opioid epidemic going epidemic going on and an issue i mean obviously there are a lot of health issues with that but the other issue is 
when you try to block pain that way, you're just sort of, you're blocking sensation and you're not targeting the, the hypersensitivity. So one of the leading hypotheses is, is that the anterior cingulate cortex actually sends projections down to the spinal cord, which sort of act like a, a gain control, like a, a volume knob on, on the incoming ascending pain processes. So the idea is, hey, if we turn the volume down, you still will get, you know, this, the painful signal for something that is really painful, but your baseline won't be so mm. elevated. Okay. So it was a very interesting study. It was the first time I'd done anything with humans. Um, so pain, pain then is kind of this like bi-directional. I mean, I, yeah, it very much. All things like work, but like pain, you kind of stub your toe. Message goes from toe to brain. Yeah. And then the anterior cingulate cortex you're saying you can manipulate it so that you can kind of turn the volume down on that pain. Yeah. So I think especially, I mean, it's not such a good, it's not so great to think of it in terms of like acute pain, like stubbing your toe is very sharp, quick. Mm -hmm. It's more sort of for lasting pain. Okay. The chronic. So if you think of like a sunburn, maybe it's a better example because the pain's sort of always there. Mm -hmm. And the idea is you can sort of alter how much of that information is coming up or the, the amplitude of that information well, hold, with this sort of volume control. Right. Well, hold on a second. So if I'm sitting in the, in the surgeon's, you know, room and he's pointing these two, or maybe you, cause you were doing this, maybe, <laughs> you know, Will is, is kind of pointing these two magnetic stimulation devices in my brain and the sunburn that I have now feels less intense. That's all fine and good. But what are the lasting effects of a procedure where you have somebody sit in a chair and you, and you blast their anterior cingulate cortex with these magnetic stimulation? Right. That's actually like a really amazing question because if you were to take any of these findings clinically and try and bring, roll them out as, as therapeutic protocols, that, I mean, that's something you got to answer. So, I mean, we had some favorable results and it could be something that should be investigated further, but there are all sorts of questions like, you know, how do we dose this? Like if people have this hypersensitivity to pain and they want to come in and get treated, how long do we treat them? How often do we treat them? How long do the effects last? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it really is. Uh, that's very much still not, not well understood. So you weren't working on like more longitudinal work. You were, you were no. saying, I want to bring somebody in and I want to just see if, if right now I can reduce the volume of this pain. Exactly. Yeah. It was very yeah acute. Yeah. Okay. But, but acute in terms of working with chronic pain. Yeah. Okay. Whereas the opioid epidemic is uh, a real problem because you can take a pill that essentially just always turns, well, actually you were saying it, but it doesn't even turn the volume down and just kind of like stops. It, yeah. It's more everything. broad and just, you know, blocking. Yeah. Numbing everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, sounds potentially promising if it's the kind of thing where once every three months you can go into, you know, exactly, get your yeah. brain stimulated and then it has these lasting effects. Yeah, great. Yeah. Do you know of, of any research right now or any, any, any labs, researchers who are actually working on these longitudinal studies? No, uh, we were the first ones to use this with pain. I'll shout out uh, Professor Paul Strutton at Imperial College. Mm -hmm. So he's a, a pain expert and Professor Nir Grossman is the guy who pioneered this technology. And so the technology itself is being used in a bunch of different capacities for investigating different aspects of the brain. So you could say maybe we stimulate another region and it has some other behavioral effect. So a lot of that research is going on. 
And I think it'll be, you know, it'll be a little bit before we get anywhere therapeutic with it. Okay. Um, there's, you know, a lot to be, to be done. Is this something that you'll be working on moving forward? No, no, no. Relegated just to your master's of science. Yeah. <laughs> So, Master of Science, congratulations. You just completed you. it this year? Uh, I finished in October 2019. Yeah. Okay, all right. So, yeah. coming up yeah. on one year. And what yeah. have you been working on in this last 10 months? So, I finished up in London and came back to Canada for a bit. I relaxed for a little bit. Mm -hmm. I was set to start a job at the University of Ottawa, which is sort of close to my hometown, in neuroscience, which was uh, interrupted by the ongoing uh, pandemic, obviously. Mm -hmm. there's, some, there's some great idiom about when every door closes, like another one opens, right? Mm -hmm. So I had all this kind of free time and I was doing these like online courses in, in various aspects of neuroscience that you know, sort of popped up that I hadn't seen before. And one of them was simulation neuroscience, just sort of a, a sort of newer field. So I, I was doing this course and I was sort of like, at the same time, exploring other options. What's out there right now? I knew I wanted to go back to, to England, but um, there are difficult rules for uh, foreigners coming in to do studies and to be funded. Mm -hmm. So I was going to have to bring funding from Canada with me. So I was sort of just, just waiting. And I came across this, this posting for recruiting a PhD student in, in Stockholm. And wow. uh, the school had been on my radar for a long time. And they we're proposing a mixture of experiments, which is sort of my background, I'm an experimentalist, with, with simulation as a kind of another technique they use. What's and that technique like, simulation? So the idea, and it kind of comes back to the idea of the human brain project, if you can standardize data and standardize and have uh, good metadata where you can um, you know, see how experiments are carried out, you can gather all these characteristics of a cell of a, a network of cells of you know, different biophysical properties. And you can basically write them out mathematically on a computer. And then you have, you're able to build this simulation of a part of the brain. So there's another uh, European initiative called the blue brain project. And their goal explicitly is to simulate the entire human brain, which is a lofty goal. Um, yeah. If we can do that, though, isn't that kind of like, like there goes AI and the singularity and bye-bye? <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. It is very interesting. Um, I think we're years away still. Okay. But I think the road to that goal brings with it many insights and many useful tools. Mm -hmm. So if you think about what you'd have to accomplish to simulate the entire human brain, and then you're working towards that goal, there are going to be a number of things along the way, which are going to be great discoveries and new techniques right so. the journey is the destination i guess in that sense yeah yeah <laughs> okay so i guess you will be right along with that journey then yeah working, working yeah, on a specific point. part of like are you working on a specific part of the brain with the simulation so so it is the basal ganglia that's where that comes in yep okay. so the lab i'm with are you know experts in in that area of the brain and uh it sort of requires this really nice 
multidisciplinary, I can never say that word, uh, team of people. So you have sort of biophysicists who are able to recreate sort of the, the dynamics of things like ion channels and synapses mathematically. And that's like the first step. Back to math. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm talking so about. So that's not me. That's not me. But, uh, but you're there. So you, you're you, you need them. You need the experimental neuroscientists who can look at the structure of the neurons, look at what ion channels are on these neurons, where they project, where they synapse, where they receive projections. Mm-hmm. All things uh, that nobody who's listening to this podcast probably knows about, but yeah. Sure, we'll get there. Uh, we will. Then, uh, oh, we definitely will. So hang in there, folks. <laughs> and then you also need, uh, you need the computer expertise. You need computer scientists who can put these into, into programs that are efficient and accessible for the neuroscientists who don't have the computer science background like myself. So it does take a village. It's like kind of a really cool project to be part of in that sense. That's awesome. Yeah. I'd love to dive into the like network formation between neurons, which came up sure. also in the introduction because you've just dropped a lot of great terms that we can, <laughs> we can hop into. I also did get feedback from a friend of mine a little while ago who said that he listened to an episode a little while back. And despite explaining each of the terms that came up as an outsider, if there are 10 terms that come up, even with explanations, if they continue to get used, it's still hard to kind of keep track of all the terms. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So okay. we're going to keep that in mind. And of course, listeners, if you have any feedback on this episode specifically, uh, definitely would love to hear other previous episodes. We're trying to cater this to the masses, ideally, but I do understand that sometimes things get a bit complex and graduate students might benefit the greatest from you know, having a, a little bit more advanced knowledge. But we're going we're gonna to dive in to the networks formed by neurons, sure. talk a bit about the dynamics there, and I guess we can, we can introduce the, the segment called Explain Like I'm Five. <laughs> so we're going to start super, super simple. I'm going to pretend that I am just a child and I knew, know oh, nothing about, about networks between neurons. And I will yeah. call you out when I do not know what you're saying because I am a child. Three, two, one. Okay, so we have these little... Uh, oh my goodness, this is tough. Um, <laughs> If you think of your brain, it's full of these tiny little cells, these tiny little dots. And each one of these has a bunch of neighbors and they like to talk to each other. And our job is to figure out which ones are talking to which ones. Who's talking to who? (laughs) There we go. So perfect, (laughs) amazing. I understand, but I have so many questions. Okay, good. As a five-year-old, I have neighbors. I live on a street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have neighbors on the left, on the right, in front, diagonal. I can, I can even walk to my neighbors a block away, but I can't really, like, where do people stop becoming neighbors? Right. It's a great question. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe, the, maybe the demarcation is ill-defined. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. And that's part of our job, too, is to figure out how far away do these 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 uh, cells in the brain still talk to each other. How many neighbors do these little, these little cells have? So it, really, it would depend on, on, on which one you're looking at in which area of the brain is, you know, a great range, but we're talking like thousands, thousands of neighbors. Thousands, yeah, yeah. So presumably when, when one cell is talking to another cell they're or at least they can kind of cover more distance more quickly than I can just walking through my own neighborhood. 
Yeah. So imagine they have sort of, uh, rather than walking, they all have telephone lines within their house that mm -hmm. go directly to their neighbors. Okay. The, yeah. So I know that on my telephone, I can, uh, I can have group calls where I can talk to Sally and John at the same time in different houses. How, how big can the group calls get in the cells? That's another great question. And it, it's very uh, interesting to see which, which cells project to multiple uh, or, or talk to multiple neighbors at once. It's not exactly clear how many, how many at once could be you gave me a uh, range on the same before. call. You gave me a range before in terms of the number of neighbors. Could you give me a range for the number of uh, simultaneous discussions I can be having with those neighbors? Probably be less than a thousand. But I'm making that up okay. out of thin air. Yeah. Okay, cool. Good to know who I'm dealing with right now. <laughs> Honesty is the best policy. Yeah, I agree. Okay. For the sake of, I guess, not, not having this, this lovely analogy of neighbors break down, <laughs> um, I'd like to know where it does break down. How, um, how, of, of course, you know, I can have telephone lines. I can talk to different people at the same time in my, in my neighborhood. There are people in different neighborhoods that also talk and there will be, I don't know, there'll be communications between those. What is, what is, what is different about the communications that happen between the cells in the brain versus the communication that happens between people in the, in the real world? Right. Well, I think, I mean, the, the most obvious, um, difficulty or where, where this analogy would break down is that we don't know, we don't understand the language they're speaking. You know, they're not speaking English to each other. They speak in this sort of binary code and you know, some parts of it might be uh, not even binary. They might be sort of all these other things going on. So the idea with, like, when I say binary code, I mean, if a cell sends like a, a signal, it's received as either a signal or no signal. Mm -hmm. So it's a one or a zero. Okay. So the brain's and, a computer then in this, in this part of our discussion. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I like to think of it, I think the best way I've heard it described is an electrochemical machine, which I think is a great, a great way of describing the brain because, I mean, it all comes back to the biochemistry of the brain, which I'm not an expert in. Mm -hmm. But the brain uses this biochemistry to create these electrical signals, which it then uses as a way of information transfer. Okay, so let's actually dive into a couple of the terms slowly. We're just going to sure. kind of construct. We have a framework now. Communication is key. <laughs> yeah. We, we got neighbors. We got thousands of connections between these different neighbors. We have this kind of binary biochemical system we're looking at, which is the brain. Now, you brought up the term synapse and the term ion channel. Sure. I personally know these are intimately related. <laughs> How do I know this? For you and for the listeners? I am currently working on a 12-track rap album that will be a supplementary material for an undergraduate behavioral neuroscience course at McGill University. <laughs> and I'm reading through all of the lectures and turning all the material into rap songs. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so, I'll get into that a bit later. But one of the things <laughs> I was just looking at in chapter two was the, the junction of one cell with another. Right. And this junction is what I believe we call the synapse. So take it away. What is, what kind of magic do we get here? We're talking about not just the telephone here. We're talking about what's happening between the telephones. So I think you have to kind of step back even further. And if you think of a cell, if you think of a neuron or any cell in any biological organism, what defines a cell is this 
membrane or this sort of wall that separates its insides from its external, its outsides. Mm -hmm. So with the neuron, that becomes especially important because the kind of defining property of a neuron state at any point in time is the difference in the ions within the neuron and in its environment. So ions. Ions, ions. Uh, charged particles. Mm -hmm. Again, my, my biochemistry is a little bit weak, but... That's okay. I'm five. Mine's even weaker. <laughs> I'm a little rusty on, on my biochem. I wasn't paying attention in... Uh, oh, it's tough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this, the, uh, the neuron and many other cells in the body maintain a difference between what's inside them and what's outside of them. They like to have sort of something different inside than, mm -hmm. than the environment they find themselves in. Mm -hmm. And ion channels are the, the links between the outside world and the inside of the cell. Okay. So the little, little gaps that allow things in or out. And they are controlled in a variety of ways. And one way that's important for the neuron is there are ion channels that are sensitive to voltage. So if you had this, this neuron that is um, influenced by some, something, we don't have to say what it is yet, but for some reason the voltage goes up, these channels open, the voltage goes up even further, it spikes, and then suddenly all these other ion channels, which are also sensitive to voltage, can change, and they can do other things for the neuron. It's a big cascade of, of, exactly, of ions. Exactly. So That's what's it, this is like the, the smallest level of communication, right? Because you were saying I have neighbors, but now right. what, right? Like, so, so the neighbors are the cells, but now my body is also, it's like, oh, well, I might only call Sally right after lunch because then enough food entered my body for me to have the energy to call Sally. Exactly. Yeah. So this is, so yeah, this, there you go. it comes back to the sandwich. It's a good thing that my basal ganglion hit <laughs> down. Also, I never would have been able yeah. to tell Sally yeah. that I appreciated yeah. her, her baked goods. <laughs> so, I mean, it really is, it comes down to like the biophysics and the chemistry. And I mean, there's a great quote from, uh, I think it's like Voltaire or something that, you know, the whole, all there is is physics and like everything else is just stamp collecting, which I think is like the greatest way to look at anything. You, if you break anything down enough, you get back to some physical property. So you get back to these positively or negatively charged ions. And that underlies all the rest of it. Okay, so we've kind of zoomed in about as far as we can go then. These, these ions, like is this, like, can I find these on the periodic table? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Potassium, sodium are the big ones. Calcium, uh, chloride. Calcium, that's in milk. When I drink milk, does that make a lot of spikes in my brain? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that how uh, bio or bioavailable calcium and milk is. I don't really. <laughs> but like, you're not at any. I uh, can't drink milk and it goes to my brain, right? Like, isn't there something that kind of inhibits that? Yeah, you're not at risk for being deficient in any of these to the extent that that your neurons would right be starving. You know. Okay. All right. So we have communication at lots of different levels. We've spoken about communication between the body and the brain yeah. via the spinal cord. 
We've spoken about communication between cells in the body and specifically in the brain. And then we spoke about communication between the inside and the outside of an individual cell. Yeah. Have we covered all the levels of communication? Well, I mean, you can think of like all sorts of communication at different scales. And one of the nice ideas about simulation neuroscience is that if you have the, the complete picture, you're able to access many scales simultaneously. So if you think of, if you're running an experiment, you might have an experiment in a, in a mouse where you zoom in on a little bit of the brain and you study it in depth, mm-hmm. or you might have an experiment in a human subject where you have like um, fMRI or so if you have a, you have a, a functional imaging protocol where you're kind of looking at a larger scale of what's going on in the brain, what parts of the brain are active. So the nice thing about simulation neuroscience is you could conceptually do all that at once. You could run one thing and then, you know, p- pick it apart because the experiment will be there on the computer and you don't have to, you know, struggle, struggle to capture these scales. When you're simulating brain activity, though, this is, this is no longer actually happening in someone's brain. No. The simulation is purely that, a simulation. Yeah. So how did we get there? Like, how did we get that simulation? Is this just from, as you were saying before, collecting lots of information from other labs? Or is, is there, like, what happens once you get that information? Right. So it takes, like I said, a number of different areas. I mean, as we just talked about ion channels, someone's got to figure out how these ion channels work. So there's biophysicists who will look at the ion channels properties and mathematically describe what's going on and then you need experimental neuroscientists who can say, okay, here's a cell. It's called like cell X. What ion channels does it have? What does it look like? What shape is it? And who does it talk to? And so what you can do is use these computer software packages to run the biophysics within this cell, model the evolution of the cell according to a voltage, right? So the what the computer is doing what the simulation aspect of it is is running these equations over and over and over and over again so you you kind of take these small time steps and you're basically solving like differential equations and i think some of them like they they solve some of the more sophisticated models that we have are like solving something like half a billion differential equations every 25 milliseconds what so, take some insane computer power. Half a billion every 25 <laughs> milliseconds. So milliseconds, 40 times yeah. a second, 500 million different equations are being solved. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that comes into the computer science aspect of how can we make this efficient? Uh, and you actually need the, the hardware that can sustain that. So now I, I mean, see why here, we have a supercomputer. Um, so it's not running on my MacBook. Uh, right. <laughs> this, this, is, this is now kind of, kind of confirming that, that, that earlier point you said, or at least lending to its validity when you said, we're probably quite a few years away from being able to map the entire human brain if, yeah. uh, if this is the kind of computing power that we need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is, is it just that? Is the limitation just computing power or is there something else that we need? Like, do we have all the technology right now to be able to map the human brain? Yeah, in theory, we mean, we need time and manpower. You know, it, it takes a long time to gather these properties about cells. Uh, it's not the most pressing goal for some people, which is fair. Um, so it does take that sort of desire to want to do it. 
there are now hundreds of labs around the world, focused in Europe, but a lot in the U.S. as well. Uh, Toronto has become a big hub for it as well, who are working on this problem. Not that it's a problem, working on this project. So I think, you know, it's a matter of time and computing power. Okay. Well, sounds like there's some interesting prospects ahead. <laughs> you definitely have your yeah. career path carved out for you. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> To kind of uh, begin to close off this, this, this academic path that we have been uh, kind of walking down, where do you see yourself after your PhD? Yeah, tough what, question. What would you like to do? You know, you've been, in the, you've been on the academic path for quite a while. Presumably, you've started to think about what you want to be the, the, the eventual outcome of all of this. Yeah. I, I enjoy research and I... And I enjoy the day-to-day of it. I like the idea of coming in every morning with sort of uh, a problem to be solved. Um, I enjoy the collaboration. I enjoy the learning side of things. I, I think there are a number of issues in academia and there certainly are a number of issues in the way we work as a society, the way we go to work. So, I don't want to get too doomsday-ish, but I'm trying to stay flexible is what I'm saying. I think we are in for some big societal changes in the next few years. That's a sweeping statement. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think uh, just observing how how automation has changed the nature of work, Mm -hmm. I think there are going to be some big, big changes in terms of, you know, what we all do in the morning. So, I mean, I've, I've, been working in labs for maybe five years and I've had a number of people more senior than me leave academia because they don't see a future in it because there are a lot of difficulties. There's a lot of competition. So yeah, I, I you know, not to, to end on a negative note, but I just, I'm trying to stay flexible and stay kind of, you know, one day at a time. And, okay. Yeah. Well, we're not done just yet. Okay. We're, <laughs> we're almost done. So, okay. So you're keeping your options open. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's okay. key. That's fair. I guess further down your PhD, you will maybe come to some conclusion about whether it is worthwhile for you to continue to map the brain or whether maybe some alternative path might be better for you. But you've clearly developed a lot of experience and you're, I I guess I would say this about most PhD students, hopefully by the time you get there, you've become an expert learner. Yeah. Not an expert, but an expert learner. I think that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So on the topic of, of describing people, we come to our final question, which I've asked to all of my guests so far. So okay. this is a segment that I would like to call, how would you describe yourself as a person and as an academic? And you can use one to three words for each of those descriptions. And are they the same description or are they different? Um, okay, I'm going I'm to say that the same. And I think, I think it's important to make those things the same. You want to be consistent. I think, um, oh, okay, hang on. Take your time. Three words, yeah? Three words. One to three for each. Yeah. Okay. Which, and I guess you just told me that yours, yours will be the same. Yeah. Could be a phrase or three distinct words or anything in between. Okay. Um, 
Okay, I'm gonna just say like listener or listen, listen. So, I mean, I don't wanna explain it too much, but I think it's the most important part of what has made me somewhat successful in this field is to step back and listen and not try to pretend or assume that I have uh, all the information, all the you know insight already. Um, and I think that can be very helpful in the personal life as well. Listen, listen, yeah. open bracket, ER, close bracket. Yeah, there you That's go. That's how I've written it down. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. You're the first person to actually specifically say that it is a good thing for the, the personal and academic descriptions to be the same. Others have said that it is the same, but I, I, I like the fact that you sure. really just said, I think it is important. I mean, unless you're like a really bad person, then maybe you want to be slightly <laughs> different when you conduct your science. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like if you would characterize somebody as a bad person, they'd probably make a bad academic. Yeah. <laughs> or bad, bad anything else. You can try and convince yourself that you keep those worlds separate, but they, without a doubt, bleed into each other. Mm -hmm. So I think there's no point, you know, convincing yourself one way or the other. Awesome. I think there's, there's actually really just one tiny last thing that I just want you to vocalize for okay. myself and for the listeners. When you're not doing research, which is the thing you said that you enjoy day to day, yeah. what are you doing? Free time. Like, what are you doing when you're, when you're, just, when you're done with work? Done some yeah. problems. Well, so far, I mean, I'm new to Stockholm, so I've been exploring a lot. Uh, just getting out. I love to like walk. And then, I mean, outside of that, I used to play rugby. I'm uh, sadly retired. Okay. And then uh, playing guitar, playing a little bit of piano. Nice. And, you know, making some music. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, music's music's great. We'll it chat. Is, yeah. We'll chat after after we close out this episode. Okay. Cool. But I think we're gonna call that a day. This is Wonderful. super fun. Super glad we got to reconnect, Will. Yeah, um, man. So that that basically concludes today's podcast, episode thirteen of Abstract. This has been William Scott Thompson. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.